I'm Glenn Slater. I am a lyricist and a writer uh, for musical theater, film, television. That's it. <laughs> what are the three things you value most in life? Three things I value most in life. Uh, my family. Uh, I have uh, two sons and a wife who's also a writer. Uh, fantastic family. Most valuable thing uh, in my life by far. I, I would say the next thing that I value most in life would be my collaborators. Um, I've been very lucky to have some people to work with who are uh, very generous and very open and very committed to the work that we do. And knowing that I have those kinds of partnerships in my life are what makes me able to sit down every day and do what I do. Uh, third thing that I value most in life, um, that's an interesting question. You know, um, I'm not quite sure how exactly to answer this, but I'm a big reader. Um, I And just having uh, a wealth of things to read and consume and to sort of jog my creativity and to keep me feeling connected to my creativity uh, is immensely valuable to me. So I have a, a big library of books at home and that is constantly growing and it's probably the one possession that if I, had, if I had to give everything else away, that's what I would keep. Tell me a memory that shaped you. You know, I, I, um, I, I know a lot of people have like very vivid memories of their, of their youth and vivid memories of growing up. I'm one of those people that doesn't. Um, and I actually have a very hard time determining whether what I have are actual memories or like memories of photographs that I saw. <laughs> that are pictures of, of when I was younger. So I don't know if I have any specific memories that shaped me as memories, as opposed to events that shaped me. Um, but um, I can't say that I, well, actually, this is a pretty big deal. One of the few things that I do remember very vividly uh, was going to see uh, the show Gypsy when I was a very young child. And this was the revival with Angela Lansbury that played at the Winter Garden Theater here in New York. I think it was 1972 or 1973. So I would have been four or five, quite young and very young for that specific material. Um, but I had, um, I had very vivid memories of the way it was staged, of the lighting, of the... Um, you know, they did a sort of thing where they had these sort of vaudeville placards that came up on the sides of the stage. And um, I just assumed that what I was remembering was maybe having seen a movie or a film production of it. But when they did a revival in New York later, um, some of the elements that I remember so vividly weren't in that production. And I went back to find the script at the Performing Arts Library here in New York to see, well, did they... I mean, is what I was what I was remembering specific to that Angela Lansbury production, and it turned out yes, it was. But these were very specific things that that director had added that I had extremely specific memories of. Um, given that I ended up going into the field that I went into, I think probably having that vivid memory of that particular thing as a it clearly had an effect on me as a child and probably has something to do with the fact that when I imagine stories, they have music and visuals attached to them as opposed to, you know, novels or poems or uh, television scripts that don't have music or whatever. So 
since I was a kid, my mom has always been like musically, like my house is infused with music. So I also share that when I think of a story, the best way to get myself like when I'm writing is put on a song and then I'll be able to like create something to it, put things together. I love discovering new music, not because I particularly like need the music in my life, more so that it tells a new story for me. So I, I love that. It's amazing how tied our memories and our emotions are to music and how you can hear a, a song that you haven't heard in decades, but as soon as you hear it, you remember exactly where you were when that memory attached itself to that piece of music. Um, and yeah, there are very few things that have that sort of immediacy and power, which is kind of cool. What's your favorite animal? That is an interesting question. Okay, I don't, this is probably not exactly the answer doesn't directly answer the question, probably, but um, a few years ago, I visited a shaman, um, and I, you know, I was in need of just some sort of spiritual guidance and some sort of uh, some answers. And somebody suggested, they said, you know, you're not. This is not the kind of thing you usually would do, but you should try it. And so I went and I uh, uh, spent some time with somebody who was. Um, sort of magical, I would say. And I went on a sort of a spirit journey and I met my spirit animal. And at this particular moment in my life, and I believe it changes depending on what your circumstances are, but at this particular moment, my spirit guide was an octopus. And on this spiritual journey, I was following the octopus. And um, the octopus told me that I, we are brothers because I also like to squirt ink and obscure people's view of myself as I drift away. And I, I don't think I'm that anymore, <laughs> but I definitely have, feel a bond to Octopi for that reason, for that, for that particular experience. Question five is, tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of which once existed and now does not. You know, living here in New York, um, one of the things I'm continually struck by, and my, my children, we, we have discussed this many times. It's a, you know, it's a city that feels like it, it has been here forever. I mean, obviously not as long as London or Dublin, which have been here, been there for three, four times as long as New York has. But it, for America, New York is sort of a, a, almost a permanent feature of the landscape. And yet, on a on a storefront to storefront basis, on a block to block basis, things change continually. And, you know, not unlike, well, actually very unlike what we were talking about with the music, where music can establish such a uh, immediate bond to the past. One of the things that we're continually struck by is that we can walk past an address or a corner where we know that there was something different just a couple of years ago or something several iterations ago, 10 years ago, and we can't remember what it is anymore. Where, where a restaurant used to be or a store used to be, and we have this vague memory of that store having been there, but it has since been replaced by something else that has wallpapered over the existence of that, that place entirely. Um, and it's, it's one of the features of living in the city that is both a blessing and a curse in a way. Um, a blessing because you experience this constant sense of renewal this sense of things vanishing and being replaced by something else. Um, but you also get a sense of the impermanence of memory, the idea that if you don't cling to something, you can lose it as time washes over you. Um, 
and I, you know, I find living in New York to to be sort of like a writer on this stream of time where you are constantly assaulted by memories that you've had, memories of things that you don't remember, but you've heard about other people's memories of things. It's such a, a crossroads of people's subjective experiences. Um, and the the coming and going of various stores and restaurants and corners and you know even people I uh, is just a sort of a, a constant reminder of your own impermanence on the landscape. Yeah, because we don't really have that here. Mm-hmm. Because everything in Ireland is old, right? Mm-hmm. Like the city the Cork uh, was burnt down in 1921. We lost so much when it when like when things are destroyed here, when we lose storefronts here, yeah. there is a sense of history. There's a reason why many storefronts keep the building that they were in behind them. Like if you go to Cork, you'll, if you look above the second story, you'll see that like established 1921, just to kind of keep the idea behind. Or like walls can be older than America here. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's very interesting to see the complete opposite side of this and what it essentially means to live on the ship of Theseus. Yeah, I am. Um, I went to university at Harvard, which is the oldest university in America. It was founded in 1636, which is just you know 16 years after the Pilgrims famously landed at Plymouth Rock. And some of the buildings there are amongst the oldest in America. And you can look at the the various dorms and classroom buildings and say, oh, that's where Henry David Thoreau sat and learned Latin. This is the room that Ralph Waldo Emerson lived in. Um, I lived my senior year, I lived in the same room as John F. Kennedy. And a place like that, that is so unchanging, gives you a sense of rootedness in history that is sometimes a source of strength, but also sometimes a source of intimidation. Right? Like, how do you live up to those people? How do you take your own claim to the world when those shadows are being cast over these stones that never change? In New York, everything feels like it's always changing. And so you don't have that sense of rootedness, but you do have the sense of freedom to reinvent yourself because the world around you is being reinvented constantly. Uh, question six is what do you suck at? <laughs> so many things. Well, I. Any sport that involves moving, contorting your body through space as the, so swimming, gymnastics, like just terrible. I have absolutely no sense of myself as a body in space. And literally even doing like a forward tumble, I cannot, I cannot do. Um, Cartwheel, my mind boggles at the thought. Uh, any, Any swimming stroke more complicated than like the most basic crawl, I I just cannot get my legs and arms to move in tandem. <laughs> For me, uh, I'm I'm also crap at sports. I've never been good at them. I've never had an interest though. I've always found that like I can read about someone or like play a video game with someone who's so good at that. I don't really need to. I'm good at telling stories and constructing them. I don't need. Uh, I also I also have like terribly weak wrists. <laughs> it's not gonna go anywhere. <laughs> um. Question seven is, what are you great at? Be good at meeting people quickly and establishing very quickly who they are, what motivates them, and um, why they do what they do. Um, I'm not sure where this comes from because I'm not a particularly empathetic person, 
I, but for whatever reason, I am very good at sort of uh, sussing out stories from very limited clues and being able to sort of extrapolate uh, from a couple of data points into a much larger thing that almost always turns out to be correct. That's a very good skill to have, though. I'd, I'd like to have that myself. <laughs> it is a good skill to have. Yeah, like for me, it takes me. That's why I do these questions, um, because they help me get that insight. I, I need the information. I need to gather it and analyze it and put it together. Um, and I just like I like the process of it. So to have the the kind of almost opposite or contrarian skill of like, no, I just I can understand. That's really cool. Uh, <laughs> and question eight is what fascinates you? I, at the moment, I'm fascinated by politics. Uh, we're at such a weird political moment here in America. I mean, in the UK as well, uh, things are kind of crazy. Um, and uh, just sort of combing through the current events, the way people are understanding, misunderstanding, interacting, um, failing to interact uh, at this bizarre crossroads moment in our history where we are sort of teetering at an inflection point between what feels like tipping over into an authoritarian status system and uh, uh, teetering on the other hand into a slightly more anarchic democratic system. Um, feel, it feels very, uh, it feels, it feels it's, it's, it feels, <laughs> I'm babbling a little bit. It, it feels like it's fascinating to me, just seeing how the, uh, how various people are acting, how they're failing to act. Um, and I, like many other people, I just have not been able to rip myself away from news articles and Twitter and burying myself in all the details, trying to make sense of it. In Ireland, especially because we're sandwiched between the UK and the US, to watch everything kind of happen and then to be like protected by the European Union. It's fascinating. Um, but I also feel almost bad or guilty uh, in many respects that I have such like a stable environment to exist in while a lot of my friends don't have that. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's both horrifying and fascinating at the same time. It's as when you're in it, you are just terrified of what might happen, but watching it from even a slight distance, it's, Again, it's just um, so interesting seeing how it's working itself out. And that gap between being fascinated and being, you know, horrified is, is a weird place to be living. At the Question nine is what piece of media should everyone consume? You know what? I, this is another question that you could answer so many different ways at so many different times. But at this particular moment, I'm going to say the movie Singing in the Rain. Um, we all need just joy and a sense of happiness and uplift at this moment. And it is one of the most purely joyful pieces of media that I think I've ever uh, consumed. And I've consumed it many, many, many times. It's one of the few movies I can say that I've probably seen, you know, over 20 times. Um, and it is brilliantly written, wonderfully constructed, amazingly acted. Uh, every part of it, is is fun and when you're done you feel like you've been on a on a on a holiday
What strange thing has informed your creative work? Well, I'm not sure if this is strange or not strange. Um, but most people who are creative approach it from the point of view of wanting to bring something new into the world. Um, they have an idea, they have a passion, they have a message. Um, they have something they want to explore. Um, my route has been a little bit different and more circuitous. And while I think I have started in that place, um, I've, I had the, either the luck or the misfortune, depending on which point of view you want to look at it from, of collaborating with extremely um, famous people during the course of my career. And what that has done is it has made me into a more reactive creator than a creative creator. Um, because I so often don't have the room or the space to bring my own point of view to the party. I am so often having somebody sort of say, this is what we're doing. And then having to scramble and react to those new realities. Um, so I, and, and it's, it's, it's to the point where literally if somebody said to me, like, if you could, if you could create anything right now, what would it be? I'm like, I don't know. What do you got? <laughs> because I've become such a, uh, such a counter puncher as opposed to a, a puncher. Um, I know this is not nearly as interesting an answer <laughs> as you probably have gotten to this question before. This is, that's fascinating. No, genuinely. Um, because for me, I, I, I do have that kind of idealism of, um, I, I do want to bring something new because I, I think my show is unique and different. But the more I look into the world, the more I'm like, well, everything's kind of already been done. I can, I can kind of do what I want. Um, like my, the kind of root of this show and one of the main reasons that, that I do it is because I, I grew up watching like interview shows and seeing how different they were. But also like, how much people waste the opportunity they have to talk to interesting people. Like they ask the same boring crap questions like, well, how did you manage to do this? You know, it's dumb. And like what happens is people learn off the answers and they just say it over and over again, which is why I kind of try and create these questions which are like, you've probably never thought about this. Uh, and that's why I do it kind of in a malicious sense. I think to give a, a prime example of it is that when I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of time on YouTube and I stumbled upon this series on, like it was on MTV in the 90s. I think it was by like Weird Al, who I was a huge, I am still a huge fan of, um, like one of my heroes. And he used to edit together, like him asking questions with people just talking about something different in, a, in an interview. Like, uh, one of them I remember is him talking to like Eminem, but he isn't actually talking, it's just edited. And it, and he's asking Eminem like, you know, do you like to wear women's clothing? And I was like, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know, I was like, and it, it, it's breaking the mold of what an interview should be. And that kind of inspired me a lot. And like most of the time when I lift off my creative inspirations, I'm like, you know, inside the actor's studio, because I love that show. I've seen nearly every episode, but also that's a big one. Like that's a pretty strange thing. Like seeing people fuck with the form, that's sort of part of my language. 
<laughs> yeah. So I like that answer. No, I think it's really cool. Did you ever have an epiphany? If so, what was it about? Oh, I've had many epiphanies. Um, and I, you know, some having to do with what I should be doing with my life, some having to do with what I shouldn't be doing with my life. Up until I was 21, well, all through high school and university, I, I considered myself to be a composer and I wrote music and that was what I did. And, um, and then I, and I came to New York after afterwards with the idea that I'm going to be a composer. And then I actually met composers and I had, I had an epiphany, which was, Oh my God, I have just spent, you know, however many years of my life learning to do this thing that I'm not very good at and is probably the wrong path. And what, what I'm good at is not writing the music. I'm good at talking about the music and interpreting the music and at making the music do things, but not at the actual making of the music. And I basically stopped playing the piano that day. Um, I, had, I literally just bought a piano. <laughs> I just spent like, I mean, I had saved up for however long to buy a piano from the first apartment that I had in New York. And I, I almost never touched it after that. It was that strong of a, this was the wrong thing I should be spending my time on. And um, I made a complete about face from writing music to saying, I, if I'm going to be working in this world, I need to be focusing on the words. Not the music. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the thing with an epiphany is that it's not just a, a, a realization you gradually come to. It hits you with this stroke of, you know, like divine thunderbolt where one minute you have never had that thought and the next minute you are absolutely certain that that thought is the only possible answer. And it was like that. It was like a light switch going on. And, and I never went back. I, I, I can count the number of times I've played the piano since that day on my two hands. And that was, you know, 40 years, ago, 30 years ago. What's just the best feeling? That's difficult to answer. Because I don't know what causes it and I don't know what it means necessarily. But there are moments when you have complete confidence in what you're doing, um, where you just know the answer, you know that you're where you're supposed to be, and you feel like you can do no wrong. Um, and when you walk down the street, it feels like everybody is smiling at you. It feels like you you're, have perfect posture. You're wearing the exact right thing. It feels like everybody on the street is good looking and that wherever you're going is the place you're supposed to be. Um, it doesn't happen very often, uh, but uh, it's those moments where, where you just know you're on the right path and, and everything feels right. Um, so much of, um, I, I find so much of the creative process to be a sort of poking around in the dark and playing pin the tail on the donkey often, where you have sort of clues of what you're supposed to be doing, you have kind of an idea of what you want, you sort of know who your audience is or what you're supposed to say. Um, and it's a lot of groping in the dark and sort of banging your head against the wall 
hoping that you're you found that soft part in the wall where you'll bang your head and you'll break through somehow. Um, but every so often, you you find a line on something where you just know what to do. You know that you've got the right song title. You know that you have you're saying the exact right thing. You know that the piece of music you're working with exactly captures what what you're supposed to be doing. And in those circumstances, everything seems to just write itself almost. Um, and that halo that you get from it extends around you and sort of lasts throughout the day. And so those are the times when I get that feeling where it's like, you know, everything's the right temperature and every smell is a good smell. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like the, the way I, I have described it to my friends is the search for the vague smell of pie. Like mm. if someone in your vicinity is cooking something and you just have to find it. Mm -hmm. uh, I I live for the pursuit and I live even more for the pie. Uh, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great answer. Um, uh, next question is, do you say I love you too much or too little? Um, I don't think you can say it too little. Mm, I take it back. I don't think you can say it too much. Um, and I definitely don't say it too little. I probably tell my my two teenage boys that I love them like eight times a day. So I, yes, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's something that nobody doesn't like to hear. <laughs> like who doesn't want to hear that you're loved? And it's something that if you feel it, it feels so good to tell somebody that why would you not take the opportunity to do it? I'm not sure what you gain by hiding that. Um, and I just putting it out there and, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you're not sure whether it's some, whether or not it's something that somebody wants to hear, just putting it out there, it, it changes the world around you. And it either makes it something that that person wants to hear or lets you know that, all right, you, you made the attempt and you made the attempt to connect and maybe it didn't work, but now you can move on without fear that you have, you know, not expressed something that you could have expressed. So, I mean, I, I come from a very demonstrative family and I, I know intellectually that there are people who grow up not having that connection with their parents or not having that connection with their children or with their wives or loved ones or whatever. Um, but I, it boggles my mind. Um, I spent a little bit of time doing a, a musical adaptation of the movie uh, Field of Dreams, which is famously about a, a man who's father basically never told him that he loved him and could only connect with him through baseball. And the whole time I worked on it, I kept thinking, I am so the wrong person to be doing this because this emotional feeling of not being connected to, to a loved one because you were afraid to tell them or couldn't tell them or didn't know how to tell them is the opposite of everything I've ever experienced in my life. I, it just seemed crazy to me that this that people go through their lives like that. What is the most valuable thing you have ever learned? The big life lesson that I have learned is that you cannot control how lucky you are, but you can put yourself in position to take advantage of luck when it happens to you. My entire career is basically a string of lucky interactions of some chance meeting turning into another chance meeting, turning into something happening at the precise moment when I was there to be able to say yes to something else that led to something else. 
it's, uh, whenever I talk to younger writers, it's like one of those, all right, I'll tell you the story of how I got here, but it's totally useless because it's not reproducible in any way. Like it's, it's just a random series of events. There's no, there was no plan that led there. But the one piece of advice I can pass on is that so many people get to where they are in life by these strokes of luck that you cannot control. But what you can do is you can be in position to take advantage of them when they happen. You can have done the groundwork. You can have put in the time thinking about what ideas you'd like to execute so that when you're in an elevator with somebody who can execute them and they say, hey, what would you think of, you know, if you had a million dollars and could do anything, what would you do? You have an answer that you can say. Um, so that when you, somebody says, would you like to take a meeting with so-and-so, you can walk right in the room and say, oh my God, I love your work. And here's what I know about you because you've done your homework. Being able to get up on a stage and perform something you've written at the drop of a hat, being able to walk into a room and give a one minute pitch about what you want to do. All those things that are kind of groundwork laying things, you can lay that groundwork and be ready for when that stroke of luck happens to walk up to that stroke of luck and grab it. It's something that um, it seems obvious, but I know so many writers and creators who are unbelievably talented and who have never had those moments of luck. Um, or if they did have those moments of luck, mishandled them. And it's, again, you can't control for it, but you can, you can learn you can make yourself available for them to have. Uh, and it's, it's, the, it's, it's sort of the ground level for doing anything else is, is having that, having those things in place so that you can leave when the moment is there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, and I think that kindness helps a lot there as well. Like when you succeed, kind of re like if you climb up one rung of a ladder, reaching your hand down and being like, okay, well, you, you come with me. Because what's going to happen sometimes is you, one of your friends that you drag up is going to go a lot farther than you and then they'll drag you up as yeah. well. Um, the other important thing that I've learned, and this was after years and years and years of therapy, <laughs> and it, sometimes it doesn't quite stick, but um, I spent a long time thinking that I was the smartest person in the room. And learning that you are not the smartest person in the room, or you're not always the smartest person in the room, or you're not the only smart person in the room. Um, is something that is super important to learn because ideas can come from anywhere and the smart answer isn't always necessarily the right answer. And approaching everything, the humility to know what you, to know that you don't know everything and that there may be wisdom and direction in places that you with all your cleverness would not have thought to go is it's humbling, but it's also, uh, I have, I have um, stumbled upon so many great things by putting my ego in check and sitting back and saying, you know what? I think I know the right answer, but your answer might be right too. Let me hear it. And maybe it will turn out to be more right. How do you feel about death? I don't have a strong opinion about death one way or the other. Um, I, I'm Jewish. I grew up in a family that was more secular than religious. Um, my family, my, my current family is also Jewish. 
more secular than religious. Um, it's the whole idea of the afterlife or where we're going or blah, blah, blah is not something I dwell on a lot. Um, you know, one of the, um, I think one of the uh, hallmarks of Judaism as a religion is that unlike Christianity, Islam, several other religions, which are more focused on eschatology, on what happens after you die, on your reward or punishment for how you lived your life, Judaism is much more focused on just the life that you're in right now and is a lot vaguer on what happens afterwards. Um, there is no heaven and hell in classical Judaism. There is no reward or punishment. Your reward or punishment comes in the interactions you have in the community that you live in, um, rather than in uh, something that happens afterwards. So I, it's not something I dwell on a lot. Um, I also don't dwell at all on the idea of like, will my work be remembered when I'm dead or what will my, um, you know, in keeping with the idea that I'm, I, I don't really have any thoughts about what's going to happen where I'm going or whatever. Um, I don't really have any thoughts about what people are going to think of me <laughs> after I'm gone either. So I, it's, it's not a real factor. in my uh, What makes you smile? Well, okay. This is, this is corny. But I have to say, I've been married for over 20 years, and the highlight of my day is still when I get home after a day of work uh, and walk into our home and I see my wife for the first time. It makes me smile every time. Every time. What role do you think joy plays in your creative process? Uh, huge. Um, well, <laughs> so that's a, it's sort of a double-edged sword because I, I, I find the expression of joy, of writing the song that captures joy to be key to what I do. I am not an angst-filled writer and I am not a writer who dwells necessarily on big ideas, but a lot of my work is about, um, working through things to find that moment of joy, to find that sense of rightness, to find that place where things are feel right. Um, and so um, it, joy is sort of the beacon and the light that I am constantly trying to capture. Uh, and when I do it, greatest feeling in the world. That being said, the process of getting there is usually not that joyful in and of itself. The actual process of doing it is more angst-ridden and... Uh, uh, frustrating and um, and uh, joyless in some ways. I mean, not joyless, but it's it's how you know that you're on the scent when you get that glimmer of that feeling of joy. And it's like, okay, that's I'm in the right direction. Now I'm getting it. Now I'm getting it. And if it takes me, usually I would say it takes me between four to six days to write a song. Um, those first four days are the joyless days. That fourth day is when I, I start getting those glimmers. And then the last two days are a much more joyful process. And it's, it's usually because I've sniffed out, uh, here's how I get to my happy place. And here's how I can express that happiness so that an audience will feel it as well. Uh, what's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to you? Well, again, so many 
I mean, my, my whole career is a, a whole bunch of coincidences. You know, the inciting event, really, uh, I, when I was in high school, I wasn't really involved in theater at all. Um, I saw Broadway shows, I watched movie musicals, but um, I knew a lot of the, the songs and scores, but I had no interest in it as a career, as a way of life or anything like that. Um, I was in a rock band with some older musicians and I, I was writing some songs for the band and because I was the, the pipsqueak, they never wanted to play my songs. Um, and it just so happened that I, the drama department at our school was putting together a, a sort of a student-written musical that was just a series of vignettes about life in high school, what it was like to be a, a, a teenager in the mid-80s. Um, and they, because it was all student-written, they wanted a student to write the music as well. And I answered the ad that, you know, the drama director put an ad in the school newspaper and I went to the meeting at the time that the ad said to arrive and I was the only one there. And so he was like, well, let's start. And I, he gave me a bunch of poems that other students had written and said, can you set these to music? Which I did. And those songs ended up being part of the show that we put on, which went to a drama competition. Uh, which was seen by a New York producer who ended up deciding to produce it off-Broadway. Um, and so at 17 years old, I had an off-Broadway show, um, which, you know, four, four months later, it was six months later, it was something I had never even imagined or thought of or wanted, and it just sort of happened. And um, pure luck. Um, and sent me down this path, which obviously has changed my life in pretty major ways. Um, so, yeah. What question do you wish you were asked? It's a hard one to answer as well. You know, I do a, a lot of interviews and I do a lot fewer interviews than a lot of other people do. <laughs> so for, you know, when I work with Alan Minkin, for every interview I do, he probably does 20. I mean, it's that that level of, of, I mean, he is, he is in so in demand and questioned by so many people in so many different ways. And usually when I do interviews, it's not like this at all. It's, it's, it's a handful of questions of like, what is it like to work with Alan Minkin? You know, like, like that kind of very basic level stuff. Um, so I've gone through my career feeling fairly unheard <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, and always sort of the, I. Uh, you know, the, um, the barnacle on the underside of the great Lincoln whale. Um, that being said, um, I'm not sure what it is that I would like to have people know about me that they don't already know. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things I try to uh, hold to when I write, and this is a... a, a a theater truism in a certain way, but as a lyricist and as a, and as a writer, one of the things I don't want to do is I don't want listeners to be listening to a song I've written and think, ooh, what great lyrics those are. I want them to listen to the song and just hear the character singing and 
as if it were the most natural thing in the world and as if it were unwritten by anybody, as if those words always existed or as if those words were just spontaneously coming out of the, the character's mouth. So a lot of what I do is self-effacing in a way, um, is, is trying not to be seen, trying not to be heard, trying not to be the focus of the questions. And often I think the more I answer questions, the more I try to put myself at the center of attention or in front of the microphone, the more of a disservice I'm doing to what I actually do. Um, so I don't know if there's anything that I particularly want to be asked. Um, I love answering questions and I'm having a great time doing this. And I love being the center of attention for however long an interview lasts. And I, like anybody's ego, I love you know feeling like I matter for that moment. But as an artist, I feel the exact opposite. I feel like the, I, I, wanna, I wanna hide from the audience. I don't wanna be seen, I wanna disappear. So that you're not experiencing me, you're experiencing the story, the character, the emotion without being aware that there's somebody with a pen on the other side of that. Um, so yeah, sorry, that was a sort of a deflection. What are you most proud of? By far most proud of my children who are amazing and brilliant and just great kids and great human beings. Um, I am not a writer who is particularly proud of his work. Um, I am the kind of writer who looks at everything I've ever written and all I see are the flaws, the mistakes, the things I could have done better, the opportunities I missed, what doesn't work, um, what got cut. Um, well, I, um, I, uh, I experienced my career as long patches of, uh, of pleasureless drudgery punctuated by brief bursts of public humiliation. So I, you know, I don't, I don't get my, my sense of pride from work. I get my sense of pride from my other life stuff. Um, and I, I, I guess that's work in a way too. I mean, you put a lot of work into molding your children and helping them grow into who they want to be and who they should be. Um, and I'm very proud of who my children are turning into. What's the best thing that's happened to you this week? It's been a fairly normal week. It has not been a, a week of great highs or lows. However, um, I have spent the last month or so working on the opening number to a new show. Um, and I just got to the end of the first draft. Earlier this, I mean, I, I tend to work late nights, so I tend to do a, a great bulk of my work between midnight and 4 or 5 a.m., and just at about 5 a.m., I put the period on the first draft of this massive, you know, 10-page long opening number. Um, it'll probably be about six, seven minutes. And that sense of completion, of getting to the end of it, of finally being able to step back and say, ah, that's what it's going to be. It's not finished. It needs another pass. There are things about it that, doesn't, that, that don't work. Um, I haven't shown it to anybody yet. So it's not yet the great feeling of, oh, the great work is done. But that feeling of being able to step back from the sculpture and say, now I know what it is. Now I see the dimensions, I see the size. And the sense of well-being and the sense of satisfaction of having gotten to this stage is pretty good. I'd say that's probably the best thing that's happened. How do you deal with uncertainty? Badly. 
<laughs> and there's so much of it. I, I think um, when you are a creator of things, much of your life is uncertain. You know, if you're writing a Broadway show, you don't know if that show is ever going to get on. If it does get on, you don't know if the song you're working on at the moment is going to be in it. If it is in it, you don't know whether or not it's going to be performed well or received well. Um, it's just uncertainty up and down the board and it's magnified by every moment of everything. Um, that's magnified by the uncertainty of, am I working on the right show at all? What are other people working on that might be better? And is what I'm working on going to hit the zeitgeist in the right way? Or am I toiling away at something that's going to not find a listener, not connect with people? Um, and then that extends out to just our general situation, I mean, particularly now where we don't know if there's going to be a Broadway in three months. We don't know if the West End is ever going to open again at the capacity that it's been at before. We don't know when movies are going to come out, or if there are going to be audiences for those movies, or whether or not things are going to be received the same way they were prior. And the political situation, as we've already, already mentioned, is a complete mess. So uh, I, it just feels to me as if I'm constantly swimming in a sea of uncertainty. And, you know, the way I deal with it is simply to um, focus on whatever task is right in front of my face. What can I, what can I accomplish right now? Um, what is the most important thing in this moment? And sometimes the most important thing in this moment is finishing the song that I am on at that particular moment. Sometimes the most important thing is helping my son finish his homework. Sometimes the most important thing is finally hanging that picture that has been sitting on the ground for the past three months. Um, you know, you never know what it is, but I just try to break things down into what is the now, what matters now. And it's when you, it, when you have no control over what anything is going to be like in a day or 10 days or a year, that's all you can do really is focus on what you can control which is and that you are, that your hands are on at the moment. But there's also a sense of like positive uncertainty, right? Because like in your creative work, you're, you're composing music that you don't know how it's going to strike the person that's listening to it. Um, mm -hmm. Like an example for me was like, I don't listen to loads of musicals. Uh, I, unfortunately have never had the opportunity to do so i've never had someone to say this is a good one this is a bad one so i'm always like ah. um but i listened to hamilton for the first time which you've probably inevitably listened to uh mm. last year and like during coronavirus and there's this song uh dear theodosia which is not written for me really it's a song for parents and their children mm -hmm. but that struck me in such a way and so as a creator when i was creating this show um i found my show hits people in ways that i don't even like i don't even dream of and so that's the uncertainty that i i live for like i agree with you in all the uncertainty that you've just said but also i think i deal with the positive uncertainty by trying to cause it being like okay feel something different uh, so i i don't know um I, I think there's an opportunity in it yeah i mean i i find that um the uncertainty is there are times when it's positive, when it, when the uncertainty manifests as a sense of possibility. Um, 
And then there are times when it's a negative in which it presents a sense of ever shifting um, bars that you can't quite find your way out of. Um, for me, the, so, okay. So one of the questions we were talking about, uh, what, what, what do I like to be asked? One of the things I don't like to be asked is which comes first, the music or the lyrics, which is like every reporter's first question and usually the last question as well. And the reason is that um, there's no real answer to that. It goes, it goes lots of different ways. But I find that if I don't know exactly what I want to say, I can't write lyric first because it can be anything. And the number of branching possibilities, it becomes this sort of forest of uncertainty where I lose the sight of what path I even want to be on because there are so many different ways to do it. Um, I prefer greatly, particularly when I work with an Alan Menken or an Andrew Lloyd Webber who are such amazing composers and such great melody writers. When they give me a melody and I can say, okay, so that's my path. That melody is the pathway. And if everything else is uncertain, that, that alone is my certain thing. That's my assignment. And knowing that I have a certain path to walk helps me organize the uncertainty around that path in a way that I, that I find enlightening and helpful. Without that path, it, it can be overwhelming for me. Um, and when they're not certain about something, so for, for example, right now, uh, Alan and I are working on an animated film and we're trying to write a song and we're not quite sure what it needs to be or how it's supposed to sound. And usually with Alan, he, he is very good and very intuitive at saying, this is the emotional content and he'll just write something very quickly and he'll say, yes, that captures exactly what that character feels. Right now he's like, I don't know, it could be this, it could be that, it could be that. And having him be uncertain is driving me insane. <laughs> every Everything that he puts out there that he's not sure about means that I'm spinning double possibilities and triple possibilities and quadruple possibilities into this cloud of unknowing that I cannot I cannot see my way through at all. Um, so it's like, as long as I have just a, a foothold in the uncertainty, I feel like I, it's a good thing because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the first branch on a journey that I don't know where it's going and that's kind of exciting, but I, at least I know the direction. Um, but when I don't even know the direction, it's, it's crazy me. <laughs> If you were on a starship, what position would you hold? I feel like I would be the, um, the ship's archivist, the person keeping the journals and uh, keeping the information straight and uh, reminding people of where we've been and reminding them of where we're going. Um, I tend to think in arcs and stories and paths and themes and I think that kind of a position would probably be the way in which I could serve my fellow Starship members the best. <laughs> if you could give just one piece of advice, what would that be? I give my kids lots of pieces of advice. At the moment, the piece of advice that I give them the most often um, and which I believe in is um, take risks. Don't be afraid to take risks. Um, it's easy to play it safe, 
and it's easy to take what's given to you and it's easy to go through a life just reacting to things that are happening to you. Um, but then your whole life is spent on other people's terms. And if you take risks, you may fail, but at least you're doing what you want to do. Um, a risk can lead to great reward. It can lead to failure as well, but everybody has failures and failures don't really matter if you just turn around and pick yourself up and take the next risk. Um, whereas if you risk everything, you may end up winning everything. And you can only do that if you take the risk. So swing, swing hard, swing for the fences. Um, and I find that when you take those risks and you, you make those big swings, you tend to succeed more often than not. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, soccer fan uh, and my club is Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and the motto of Tottenham Hotspur is to dare is to do. And I truly believe that. You know, take the big swing, dare everything. By daring, you will accomplish. Right? You don't take the if you don't take the risk, you will never get to where you're going. Hey folks, it's Tess from the Curiosity Project. It's time once again to thank my patrons on Patreon. Which again, an insane thing that people support this. I'm just incredibly grateful. I want to thank Samantha Murray, Brianna Jones, and Book Sherpa. Thank you all for your wonderful support. And to everyone who listens to this show, thank you as well. I'm going to go find some water and cool off. Oh my god. <laughs>